Amen. All of the music has been so good this morning. Did you recognize that song in remembrance of me? Cindy, thank you. Great job. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The title of the message is Significance of Communion. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that. And I recognize that in a place like this, we have a variety of different backgrounds involved. But let me tell you some of my earliest memories walking into church on Sunday morning at our church in Macon, Georgia, where I grew up, if we were having communion that day, there'd be a table down front and all the normal furniture was missing and there would be something under a white sheet. Any of y'all remember that? Is that the way you remember it growing up at your church? And, and I knew several things. Now, keep in mind, I was like you know eight or nine when I started putting two and two together. I knew, first of all, we were going to have a shorter sermon that day. So I got excited about that. And I got excited about the fact that my parents would let me play with the cup and all that because, you know, I hadn't yet trusted Christ as my Savior. I wasn't partaking of communion. Uh, But back in those days, now, some of you young people are not going to believe this. In our church, we had the little communion cups, but they were glass. You might remember that. We we didn't have plastic. I don't think plastic had been invented yet when I was a kid. And so we, we really had the glass, and I guess they had to wash those every time. And you had those neat little cup holders on your pews that... You know, they were there every week, but they were only used that one time. And, you know, I remember hearing the sound of the glasses after we had taken communion going back in there. And it was almost theatrical, the way they did the elements of communion. The, the You know, the pastor and the chairman, the deacons, would take that cover off. And I just remember watching that and realized this is incredibly special. Because I want to talk to you today about the significance of communion. And I'm going to do something today that's the exact opposite of what happens in church quite often. Because in the church I grew up in, a lot of times we would receive communion, but the message had nothing to do with it. And so I didn't learn a lot about what's the significance of communion. So today I'm going to do the opposite. We're going to talk about communion without actually receiving communion. All right? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you think about communion, about what it, what it means, one of the things, there's two groups Two, two things I want you to think about as a result of this message. Number one, your church, because Paul's going to talk about the church in Corinth and some issues that were there. And then secondly, you personally. In fact, the end of the service is really going to bring us all to just a time of self-examination because that's what Paul calls us to. Let me read the first few verses as we look at this caution on unity then under the first point. Beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one has taken his own supper first, and One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? In this? No, I will not praise you. So the first thing that he talks about is I'm going to give you some instruction. Literally, I'm going to transmit a message. Now, he's already been teaching them in this passage about some issues in the church. And 
some of 1 Corinthians is just real practical. In fact, some of it is so practical that it's really specifically just for the folks in Corinth. I kind of skipped over chapter 8 teaching through 1 Corinthians because it dealt with meat sacrifice to idols. And I just figured the majority of the people in here weren't dealing with that. And so we kind of skipped that. The part of chapter 11 deals a lot with hair and head coverings and those kind of things, important issues. But I want to get to the heart of this division issue that Paul's already saying. There's things in the church all the way back. For We've looked back in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's talked about the fact there's just this is a church, and yet this church is messed up. There's some problems going on. Let me remind you, Corinth was a heathen town, probably the hotbed of wickedness in the first century. And Paul had been there for about 18 months establishing the church. But by the time he writes 1 Corinthians, he had been gone for about five years. And so he's in another part of the world ministering somewhere else. But he's getting messages from from Corinth. And so he writes this letter back and says, I'm transmitting a message. And he says, I do not praise you. The message is, I'm not praising you in this. Now, the word praise here is not the one most often used in the New Testament, which would mean to praise God. This one literally means to applaud. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 11, he said, I'm going to applaud you in something. There's something I'm going to commend you on. You're doing really good, so hey, stand in O. But then he gets to verse 17 and 18, and he says, you know what? I've got to transmit a message to you. There's some problems in the church, and I can't give you an ovation for this. I can't applaud you over the fact that there are divisions he said in fact you come together not for the good but for the worse paul said there are times that you're entering church and something good's not happening now shouldn't it be good i mean shouldn't you go into church shouldn't paul say hey i'm glad you're going to church but paul is saying when you come to church it's not for good it's for for bad it's for worse their communion now catch this communion it is, it's kind of the concept of communion is this Greek word koinonia, which means body or unity. It means united. And yet that was the very thing that was dividing them. The thing that should have brought them together, getting around the Lord's table and remembering his death, his body and his blood and his death for in our place should have been a thing that united them. But they had allowed it to become a thing to divide them. Let me just tell you a little, little footnote here. One of, great, one of Satan's greatest tactics, our enemy, the devil, one of his greatest tactics is to try to divide and conquer. One of the things he wants to do in your church is to divide the unity of the church. And so he'll do that in a variety of ways. We'll talk about in just a minute. He says, so you come together not for better but for the worse, and divisions exist. In fact, this is the Greek word, that we get our word schism or schism, depending on how you pronounce it, but it literally means a split or gap. It refers to tearing or cutting. And Paul said, that's the word that's come to me. And it's interesting, Paul says, the word that I'm getting is there's this schism or schism in the church, this division in the church. And he said, in part, I believe it. What Paul's basically saying is, I'm not believing everything I'm reading because I think they're exaggerating. But the letter has gotten to Paul, the word has gotten to Paul, and Paul's saying, you know what? I'm believing some of what I'm hearing, and so I'm going to have to deal with some of this division in the church. Let me ask you something. Let's bring this back for application in our own church. Okay? Don't answer out loud. But think about your own church. Are there things in your church that divide the congregation, and are there things in the church that unite the congregation? 
Let me tell you about some churches I've heard of. I've heard of churches that fight over the temperature in the auditorium. I've heard of churches that fight over the color of the carpet. There's churches that fight over the style of music. There's churches that fight over the length of the sermons. I've literally heard both sides. I've heard some that says, our preacher preaches too long. I've heard others say, he doesn't preach long enough. Like, well, maybe the two of you need to, you know, change churches. I don't know. I've also, from a preacher, have seen one of the things that divide churches is just carnal leadership. People in the church that have risen to positions of teacher or elder or deacon, and they're just not following God. Let let me give you a couple of examples. I heard of one that walked up. It wasn't me that he walked up to, but a friend of mine, a pastor, and the, the, the leader in the church basically said, let me tell you something. I was here when you got here, and I'll be here when you're gone. Basically saying, it's going to be my way, not God's way. Now, I was here for this next one. One of the leaders in the church, deacon of the church, stood. We were starting an outreach campaign where we were kind of having Friends Day and inviting people to come to church, and he literally stood up and said, my wife and I joined this church because it was a small country church, and I intend to keep it that way. Well, really? I mean, I thought, you you know, us four and no more. I didn't know that was his motto. It was kind of like, we don't want other people coming to our church. What causes divisions at your church? Let's look at what was causing divisions at Paul's church. He said, I'm not believing everything I'm hearing, but I'm believing part of it. There's divisions there. In fact, you need to understand something. Before you get too upset about divisions, Paul says something interesting. He says, there must be factions among you. It's necessary. Why? Because there's going to be people that are spiritual leaders that are not going to put up with the stuff that is spiritually carnal. And so one way to keep your church united is just not confront anybody on anything. Anything goes. You know, you want to live that way? Fine. You want to live that way? Fine. Just, you know, whatever seems right to you. That, even that won't keep you united. But I can tell you, it's not godly. So what happens in a church then? Sometimes it takes those times for leaders to arise who are spiritually minded and not carnal. You say, you know what, what does the Bible say about this? Let's obey God rather than man. Let me just challenge you. If you're in a church that has issues, in our modern mindset, you know what we typically do? We tuck and run. We just say, I this church got too many issues. It may have been that you've been there 10 years. You've invested your life there, and you know that's where God has called you to plug yourself in the church. Then how about helping to lead in that church? To put the church back on God's path. So either we tuck and run or we just ignore it. And we're just like, well, you know, I just just ignore it. Just That's just their thing. Just let it happen. No, that should not happen in church. And so Paul's saying the reason there's some factions there is it's going to make apparent who the real leaders are, who the spiritually minded people are, so that those who are approved can become evident. Those who have stood the test will become apparent cause of their issue was selfishness. Selfishness. Look, look how Paul describes it. He said, listen, when y'all come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. In fact, you've taken the Lord out of it. All you're doing basically is having supper. Quit calling it the Lord's Supper because it's really about you. The thing that should unite you is, is what's starting to divide you. And here's what was happening in the first century church. Apparently, this is where potluck suppers came from. Okay, Covered dish. 
apparently, and we know this from history, that back in the first century church, the people would bring food together and eat together and share in a fellowship meal. In fact, they called it a love feast. The problem is they were spending a lot more time on the feast than they were on the love. In fact, what they were doing is they were bring, you know, typically when you have potluck, you're supposed to bring enough to share. They weren't doing that. I don't know if it's because they started saying, oh, you, you went through the drive-thru at Bojangles. I, I've got the real stuff here, you know. They didn't want to share with each other, but here's what was happening. The rich people came in, set their food down in front of themselves. As soon as they got there, they ate. And it was kind of that mentality of every man for himself. Well, what Paul's saying is if that's what you're going to do, don't you have houses to do that in? Why are you shaming the church by coming to church and just making sure your needs are met? And then the worst thing is, he said, some of you are poor, and so you're starving to death in church, while these people over here are drinking to excess and are drunk. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? And the word he uses for drink the second time is not to get drunk. It just means that's where you'll refresh yourself with beverage, okay? That's your eating and your drinking. Just quit bringing it to church. Do it at home because the way you're doing it at church is causing division in the church. So their problem was selfishness, and they have shamed those who have nothing. What do you think is going to happen to somebody that shows up late and everybody else has been fed and you're sitting there starving to death? And some of those people were the ones that were slaves because they would have been the last ones to get there, and all the food's gone. And it wasn't just because they ran out of food. It's because they weren't intending to share with each other. So he cautions them on unity. Now let's get to the meaning of the picture. What Christ did in the upper room. In fact, if you look at Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, we see the picture of that last supper, the Lord's Supper, communion. It's interesting that only about four verses in Matthew really deal with the actual supper, Lord's Supper, communion part. Only about four verses in Mark and only about three verses in Luke. So really only about 11 verses in the Gospels deal with this message. And most conservative scholars think that 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were published and had been written. And so Paul's teaching them what he's received. That's what he said. Listen, what I'm going to give you is what I received. Now, I've already talked to you about the picture of my first memory. Let me share with you what picture comes to your mind. Probably the most famous picture of the Last Supper is by Leonardo da Vinci. Y'all seen it? Can y'all see that picture okay? This picture bothers me. Let me tell you why it bothers me. Apparently, Leonardo da Vinci had never read his Bible. I was standing actually at Lifeway Bookstore one time, and I didn't mean to say it so loud that somebody heard me, but I just was going, this picture just kind of offends me. Let me tell you a couple things wrong with it. Number one, they're sitting at the table. We know that in the first century, they would have been reclining at the table, not sitting with tables built up on sawhorses, and you can like see their feet underneath it. Number two, look how they're dressed. They look like they're rich. They weren't. Look how old they are. I don't know if you can see the picture real well, but those are like old people. Jesus looks like the youngest one in the crowd. Let me tell you something. Jesus would have been the oldest one in the crowd. Peter was probably the only one who wasn't a teenager. How do we know that? Because when it came time to pay the tribute to Caesar, Jesus and Peter were the only ones that had to because they were the only ones old enough. Another problem I got, they make Jesus look kind of effeminate, and he wasn't. 
Now, I know, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, he's not here to defend himself. I've actually, you may have seen this one. I actually saw this at a stained glass window in a church. And, like, the guy on the right side and the guy on the left side looked like the same guy. And I thought, I guess, you know, when Leonardo's painting, is like, okay, you stand over here. But as soon as I get through painting, you run around to the other end because we don't have enough to fill in all the details. I saw another one where they were picking up loaves of bread, which we knew the bread at the Passover meal would have been unleavened bread. And, like, one of them had one here, and the guy at the other end of the table looked like they were talking on walkie-talkies or something. Now, hopefully I haven't just blown everybody's illusion of the Last Supper. But let me just tell you, it didn't look a lot like that. The, the last thing I'll say is, why are they all sitting on the same side of the table? Well, obviously that was for the picture. When Leonardo showed up in the upper room, he said, hey, if you're going to be in the picture, get on the other side of the table. This is probably not what it looked like at all, okay? So what did it look like? Paul says, what I'm giving you is what I received from the Lord. Okay? So I think divine revelation from the Lord to Paul about the significance of this Last Supper. And so the first thing is Christ's body was broken. He says on the night that he was betrayed. Now keep in mind, what was the significance of this meal? The Last Supper occurred during the Passover meal. They had been Jews had been celebrating this meal for hundreds of years. What it reminded them of was their escape from Egypt. When they were in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, they had to leave in a hurry, and so the bread was unleavened. And the Passover meal would have had four cups. The first cup of wine that would be passed was followed by some bitter herbs and some teaching on the significance of the Last Supper. In fact, when it took place in homes, the, the purpose was for it to be a teaching opportunity and for the children in the home to say, Dad, why are we doing this? Dad, why is the bread unleavened? Well, because we didn't have time to put the leaven in it when we escaped from Egypt. And so as a reminder of that day, we still use unleavened bread. So the first cup would be passed. Some herbs would be eaten, there'd be a message on the Passover, and the first of this significant hymn called the Hallel would have been sung, first part of it. Second cup would be passed, and then they would have had the unleavened bread. Then they would eat the meal. Then the third cup would be passed after prayer. The third cup would be passed, and they would sing the remainder of the hymn. And then the last cup would be passed, and the, the significance of the last cup was it was celebrating the coming kingdom. And right after that, they would leave. And there's a lot more detail about how that was experienced. But in the best manuscripts in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't even say that Jesus said, this is my body that was broken for you. Because what do we know about the body of Jesus? None of his bones were broken. Old Testament prophecy. You couldn't break the bones of the lamb that was going to be sacrificed for the Passover meal, and it was a prophecy that Jesus' bones would not be broken. Now, why did they break the bones of the condemned person dying on the cross? To speed up his death. If they came, if it was getting dark, it was getting late, they would come and check and see if the person was still alive. If he was, they would do a merciful thing, and that was they would break his legs. Because what the person was doing was constantly pushing up on that nail in his feet to get a breath, and then he would sag back down. And they would break the bone so that it would speed that suffocation. 
And so really what Jesus said is, he holds up the unleavened bread and says, this is my body, which is for you. Don't you think about that. The people that he did that with did not get the significance. But Jesus did. Jesus knew on the night that he was betrayed that the next day he was going to be beaten. His body would certainly be pierced by a whip, by a crown of thorns, and ultimately by a spear. When they came to Jesus about to break his leg, they said, we think he's dead. But just to make sure, they pierced a spear into his side. And blood and water came out separated, and they recognized this, this person's already dead. And so Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. So the significance of communion is, folks, when you receive the elements of communion, is take a moment and recognize that when you eat the bread, it's representing the body of Christ that was given in your place. See, you and I deserve to go to the cross, but we didn't. Jesus didn't deserve to go to the cross, but he did. And it said after a prayer, Jesus broke the bread and distributed among them and said, Take, eat in remembrance of me. So his body was certainly pierced, bruised, wounded, and put to death. Then he took that cup. Most scholars think this would have been the third cup of the night. And he's about to put a new significance on something that they had all experienced every year at Passover. Everything up to this point had been pretty much the same, reminding them about Egypt, reminding them about the Exodus. But now Jesus says, this isn't a reminder of the old covenant anymore. This is a reminder of the new covenant. The covenant which is in my blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses anymore. We have a high priest that's been crucified in our part. But 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And again, as he's sharing this with them, men and women, listen. The disciples didn't totally get it. But the next day, they began to understand. And certainly by Sunday, when they see him again, they start to understand that what he had been telling them, that he would have to die, but that he was, would be raised from the dead, they started piecing the pieces together. And Paul teaches us now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 the significance of all that. Christ's blood was shed. But then the last thing is our response. Let's look at these last few verses of chapter 11, verses 26 and following. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So the last thought is this. When we receive communion, how should we receive it? First thing is we need to remember. Just Three things and we're done. First is to remember. The whole significance of the Passover was for them to remember. Now Jesus is instituting a new covenant. And Jesus is instituting a new picture of that covenant. 
And that is through the bread and through the cup, through the wine. And so we need to remember. What do we need to remember? We need to remember the significance of this. Before you put that piece of bread in your mouth, you need to think about this represents the body of Christ. He took my place. I deserve to die. He didn't. And you take the cup. This represents his blood. My blood was the one that should have been spilled because I was the guilty one. So I just want to encourage you, don't come to the table. Whether the elements are passed or whether you come forward to receive it or however you do it in your church, don't do it flippantly. And so the first thing is we need to remember. The second thing is, part of this is we proclaim his sacrifice. Jesus said, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come. We're preaching a message the elements of communion. What are we telling people? That Christ's body was given on our behalf and His blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven. There was a penalty to sin. The penalty was death. And Jesus took that in our place. So we proclaim that. We, we become preachers at this moment just by what we're doing visually by taking the bread and taking the cup. And then the last thing is you must examine yourself. Paul said, listen, the problem is you're coming just flippantly to the table. You're coming in, having this big meal. Some of you are over-drinking, and then you're taking communion. Come on, you're not united. You've just put divisions between yourself, and yet you still want to receive communion. So you need to examine yourself. Paul says if you take in an unworthy manner, it literally means irreverently. Listen, it's possible to be irreverent in the way we receive communion if we're just too flippant about it. If we do it without thinking, if the elements are passed and we just say, oh, yeah, thanks, and we take it. If you're not thinking about the significance of this, you're doing it in an irreverent, unworthy manner. We have an American flag. One of the things you can do to that flag is some people will burn it. Some people will kind of step on it. Let me just tell you something. That flag is more than a piece of cloth. It represents a nation. So when people desecrate the flag, they're not just tearing up some red, white, and blue fabric. They're stepping on our nation. Well, understand something. When people don't take communion reverently, they do it in an unworthy manner. It's the same thing. It's just not bread or juice. It represents the body and the blood of Jesus. So do it reverently. He says, basically, if you do it in an unworthy manner, you become guilty of the body and the blood, but you must examine yourself. Literally, you must test yourself. This is the word that would have been used of purifying metals. They burned away anything that shouldn't be there. So what should you do? Listen, before you receive the bread and the, the, the drink, you need to pray and just say, God, search my heart. Is there anything in my life that's not right? God, is there anything between me and you that's not right that I need to get right? God, is there anything between me and somebody else? that I need to get right. So when we come to the table, we do that in an attitude of, God, show me. Reveal my heart. And God, I confess. Lord, if there's something you show me that I don't need to be doing, I repent. And I confess it. And I'm going to make it right if I need to go talk to somebody else. So then when we come to the table, it's a celebration. And we're not bringing condemnation upon ourselves. In fact, Paul put it real plainly. He said, the reason some of you are weak literally feeble, the reason some of you are sick, and the reason some of you sleep is because of this right here. 
you've trampled on the body and the blood of Christ. Anytime you see the word sleep, it's a euphemism for believers who've gone on to be with the Lord. Spiritual ills have physical consequences. Paul's already talked about it in the fifth chapter, but here he brings it back around to say this needs to be taken seriously. So here's how we're going to close our service. I'm going to pray. Our guys are going to come back and lead us in some worship. I've intentionally ended a little early because we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're not going to receive communion, but I'm going to ask you just for a moment of self-examination. One of the things I love about what I hear about churches in Europe is they have a thing at the end of the service called the Amen. You know what they do? At the end of the service, nobody just immediately leaves. Everybody kind of stays there for a few minutes and reflects on the service. So one of the things I want you to do is just say, God, what do I need to apply to my life? And even though we're not receiving the elements today, I want you to do this. God, before I sing a note of this song, I'm opening myself up for examination. God, would you show me if there's anything between me and you that's not right? You know what, students, adults, it may be that some of you, God speaks to your heart and says, you don't know me. And so today would be the day for you to come to him and say, I acknowledge my need for a Savior. So I want to invite you, if even while we're singing, if you need to go to one of your youth leaders, I'll be standing at the back. Go to somebody that you can talk to about your relationship with God. Settle that issue now. But for the rest of you, if God shows you something you need to deal with, deal with it where you are. If it's a conversation you need to have after you leave, then you can't have that conversation here. There may be somebody you've offended you need to talk to. Would you make that commitment to God before you leave here today that I'm going to take care of that today, God? Let's pray together as our guys come and lead us. Join me in prayer. Father, as we consider the elements, Lord, of communion, as we think about the body and the blood, God, help us to recognize the significance. God, I pray it will never be the same. The next time we're in church and the plate is passed and we take the bread or we come to the front and receive the bread and the, the wine or the juice. God, may it never be the same. May we acknowledge and recognize the significance. Help us even now as we close this service. Lord, show us if there's anything in our life that you want to deal with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.